the incomparable. Number 499, February 2020. Welcome back, everybody, to The Incomparable. I'm your host, Jason Snell. We continue our walk through many, 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 many TV shows that aired in late 2019 that we uh, are enjoying talking about. A lot of good TV in late 2019. And uh, in this episode, we're going to be talking about The Expanse. You may remember it as the Sci-Fi Channel's The Expanse, but the Sci-Fi Channel walked away from it and said, we don't want that show anymore. And uh, then in came reclusive billionaire Jeff Bezos, to say, how about Amazon Prime? Let's just put that on the Amazon Prime. So they did. And the entire fourth season of The Expanse dropped on Amazon Prime Video in December. And I'm joined by three wonderful people to talk about season four of The Expanse. Aline Sims is here. Hello. Hello. Sci-fi channel executives are fools. mm, Yeah, dummies, dummies, dummies. Chip Sutterth is also here. Chip is the uh, the host of a wonderful, or one of the many hosts slash panelists slash, I don't know how, is it a flat It's a very flat team structure. structure. Okay. Of a legitimate salvage uh, on The Incomparable, which is going through The Expanse episode by episode. We've pulled Chip forward in time to talk about the entirety of season four, even though a legitimate salvage is uh, still on uh, episode... Uh... Episode four. Hi, Chip. Glad to be here, Boss Mang. <laughs> and Moises Chuyan is also here. Hello. Oh, yeah, Boss Mang, your faction does not speak for the belt. That uh, uh, Yeah, so they canceled this show, and uh, we would just have to make up the content of this episode if uh, Amazon hadn't swooped in. And uh, they they renewed it for season four. They renewed it for season five before they even dropped season four. So there's a season five in the works. And then they dropped all these episodes in a binge drop so that you could watch them at your leisure. I, I, I watched them over the course of about a month because I don't I do the slow binge trademark. Um, the uh, it's good to have them back, though. Right. Like this. It, it, Aline said it earlier. I, I was p- kind of mystified by the sci fi channel dropping it other than the fact that they didn't own it and that there were like streaming rights that they didn't have and so like they felt like they weren't getting their mo- there's their money's worth out of it but um it, it uh it it seemed like a mistake and season four boy it really did prove to be a uh i think colossal mistake on their part because the show was spoilers for the rest of this podcast I guess, show was uh was back and it was uh, as good if not better than ever i thought yeah so there were some things that i don't know that I agreed with that we may or may not get into later, but the actors are really, I think, settling into their characters. And I was blown away by a lot of the acting this season, like uh, Naomi's code switching from um, dealing with kind of the crew of the, mm. the Rosinante versus dealing with Belters um throughout the throughout the season was like she's so good and it's so subtle and she's done it the entire time they've written her code code switching into the script but it's just she's just so good at it and there are just a lot of character moments that are like yes this this is exactly this is why i watch the show this is why i love the books is because it's got the character beats that are so great avasarala also gets to swear with impunity oh yes she does. Everybody gets to swear with impunity. It's true. <laughs> anyway, this is ba- based on the novel uh, Cibola Burn, 
which is the fourth book in the Expand series. And I think a lot of people don't like that book. It is definitely a very different kind of book. And and it's this is a very different kind of season. One of the things about season four of The Expanse is that it's set on a planet in a way that, like, yeah, we cut back to Earth and stuff, but, like, they land the Rosinante on a planet and everybody gets off. And a few people have to get back on. Because they're going to die because they're uh, belters and their gravity is bad for Naomi. She has to get out of there. But the book was a, a departure. Uh, the The season is a departure in, in a bunch of ways, which is interesting, putting these characters in kind of a different context. I guess they shot uh, this most of the season in a quarry in Ontario, Canada. The, uh, the good old GTA greater toronto area quarry filmmaking i just felt like i was at home yeah it's a classic doctor who move that has been moved over that star trek discovery does it and uh, the expanse now does it the quarry every alien planet is a quarry it turns out uh and uh and and i know that a lot of fans of the books didn't really love this book they they i think they did an admirable job of adapting it there's there's stuff they pull from things that are not in the book but are in the series yes and are canonical and um, make this season feel like the rest of the show, which is similar in a lot of ways to the way that the preceding books feel. And I feel like uh, this is another case like The Magicians, where the process of adaptation has a beneficial effect on making things flow and making them audience friendly without being audience pandering. It's not pandering to the audience. At, like to, to me, this works. And the way the book worked, if they had gone really, really strictly by the book for this season, I don't know that I would have enjoyed it as much. Yeah. I told myself that at the end of season four, I would make the decision whether or not I would crack the books because I haven't read a single one of them yet. And having just finished season four, I am no closer to deciding. I've got this, <laughs> I've, I've got continuity brain, old old comic book fan has to have everything in a certain a certain order. And you're offering me two different texts uh, at the same time if I start reading the books. So that's a little confusing. But watching season four, I could tell that the the Eyeless story and everything else that was going on seemed to be coming from different places. And at times I felt like I was watching an anthology show rather than a complete season. So um, there were there were some times when I was trying to see the different pieces linked together more than they naturally did. Well, I think the book is recognizably Cibola Byrne, but the, the fact is that Cibola Byrne doesn't have much Bobby in it mm-hmm. and really not a lot of Avicerala, but but especially not a lot of Bobby and uh, we can get to Bobby in a minute, but because basically they adapted a novella that they wrote that is Gods of Risk, I think, that is uh, about Bobby on Mars and what's going on with Mars. Um, to Moises's point, it's absolutely the case that this is like a second draft. Like if you if you consider the books a first draft and they're not, they went through many drafts to become books. But like the TV producers and the writers who are involved in the production of the TV show, this is another cut on it where knowing what happens in the rest of the books in this series allows them to lay the groundwork. So Avasarala, who only appeared in book two, appears in season one of The Expanse. And here, in this season, uh, we've already heard actually earlier on about the fact that Naomi had a child, uh, which did not get mentioned in the book series until basically we met the child. And in this season, we actually do see the child and we see the child's father. 
Um, and I'm not, I don't believe those characters are actually even in Cibola Burn. I think they don't appear mm. until the fifth book, Nemesis Correct. Games. Correct. Yep. Yeah. So uh, it's another example where they're like, these people are going to be important. We should probably show them now rather than wait. And then you feel like you're being kind of like led into what happens next in a way that the books don't do because they may have not decided to tell that part of the story <laughs> exactly. And so it, it feels like a second draft, which is, uh, which I think is good. And I think it makes it all seem more rich and interconnected and also i think they have the opportunity to drop some of the stuff that that maybe went on a little too long and didn't work as much in the books in order to fit it because even at a 10 episode uh adaptation of a novel there's stuff you got to drop and there's a lot of simplification they did that i think was good aline do i remember right that you did not like this book i would consider skipping it my next read through i do not love it i think that it is slow and kind of boring and yeah, just not my favorite. So I was not looking forward to the season all that much uh, of the of the show. I don't know that it's my favorite season, but I liked it a ton more than I thought I would based on the source material. Aline, can I ask, um, would you would you say that it's comparable to on its face it, describing the season to somebody as, oh, you know, that episode of shows like Star Trek where they go down to some planet for <laughs> an episode and they solve the planet and then they leave? How about that? But that's the entire season um, without any other context that it, it's more that, that that is that's how Sybil Burn feels in terms of, oh, really, is this really all we're doing? Yeah, kind of like it seemed like an awful lot of book and a lot awful lot of series for and maybe that's why is because I'm so used to Star Trek and all of the problems are solved at the end of the episode and we never hear about that planet again. Um, so I'm used to kind of like shorter snippets of it. But yeah, I think that that's a pretty good way to think about it. I do think that there are important things contained within it. Um, you know, character notes with uh, Proto Miller um kind of learning more about the this alien civilization getting to see the ruins like all of that's really cool um but yeah the the book itself is not not my favorite i mean i i wrote i wrote my notes very carefully because i wanted to dance around not just spoilers for this season before we blow the spoiler horn but also spoilers for things that happen later in the series of the books that they're obviously setting up and the thing that i found really interesting is like jason was saying there are these things that that aren't in sibla burn that are in directly related you know novellas and other other parts of the series that they have woven in so that things don't just come out of nowhere and there is there is a thing that is alluded to there is a mystery that is not solved. The who is behind this thing and what is it that they're really trying to do that is not resolved in this season and is left as an open thread. Right. And I love, I love the dynamic of those two things is that, is that we're getting some of the stuff seated for what is, is really about to just hit us right in the face and other stuff that is going on that we, we don't have enough to go on to guess what's happening beyond a, a general sense of what's happening. Um, and and I, I, I like that. So, Aline, you mentioned the pace of the of the book. And this is great for Chip, who hasn't read the book, but you're making him <laughs> really want to read this. But um, that, that was one of the best things I thought about this season is that, you know, when, you, when you're adapting a 600-page book, 
even in 10 episodes, you don't have time for that. So you're going to have to make some decisions. And they made a lot of really good simplification decisions that kept the yep. plot moving forward. Because the core of this plot, you've got belters who are landed on a planet. And then you've got kind of like corporate science and, and you know, security people who are also on that planet. And it's kind of this gold rush and it's kind of a, a, a culture clash and it's a standoff between the people who are um, are out here on the frontier to find a new life because in the previous seasons they've opened up these ring gates and now there are all these habitable planets out there and you know and the Rosinante is sent basically to watch and uh, and in essentially stand between these two opposed groups while also as it turns out talk about a star trek episode while uh setting off an uh, an ancient alien hibernating technology system that is going to wake up and kill everybody <laughs> and that's a that's a pretty good premise it, and and the tension between the two groups i think is handled pretty well um it, and and i don't know something about the pacing of this the book did seem kind of slack in a way that the, yeah. the the season does not like you've got other elements going on back on earth and on mars but like the main thrust of the plot there are always places where it's moving here and there and always new problems to solve as these systems on this alien world uh keep kind of spinning up and and, and it's been millions of years since they've been running so they don't work right or they do something terrible and they have to figure it out and they have to solve the problem or they have to hide until it passes and uh and, and as a result the season has a moment that I think the book lacks. Yeah, I think that's exactly spot on. I think a lot of my trouble with the book is a lot of it is just like, oh, hey, we don't like each other. And here are all the ways that we're demonstrating that we don't like each other. And here, like we're tripping each other up, even though we have this greater global problem we need to solve. And it's just like, okay, just, uh. and I felt like they did a really good job of condensing that in um, for the show, like they, I mean, it would have been really boring to have like six episodes of them like sabotaging one another. So I'm glad that they handled it the way they did. And you cast Burn Gorman as Murtry, and he just comes in and sneers and is like super evil dude, and uh, that helps, I think, in terms of yeah. like you're, you're pitting everybody against everybody else. Oh, what, what? So Burn Gorman, he's the big he's our he's our big cast addition for this season as Murtry. He's really good at playing a very bad dude, but I think the challenge that this season has with him is on its face, the two sides both have good arguments. But Burn Gorman tips it t for me anyway. Tipped it way over on the 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 side of good versus evil because he's so you know he's so good at playing this kind of character, and Murtry has sort of relishes having the opportunity to kill people. Essentially, right. he's he's clean shaven, but he brought ten pounds of mustache wax. Jason, when you started talking about Bern Gorman, I was, uh, and you said he's the big, and you said you said the big cast edition. I was afraid that you were going to say the big bad, and I was going to be, oh no, no, buried alien technology is the big bad. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, um, I do like um, that Mercury doesn't give an f. Uh, that he is uh, that he is that contemptuous of the Belters. There, there is a certain primal capitalistic nastiness to him that I actually found kind of refreshing. Although that may have been just, um, I I enjoy Burn Gorman when he's playing um, 
bad guys or anti-heroes. He's, mm-hmm. he's just so good at it. Um, but then when stuff hits the fan and they are all at the mercy of the planet and they are all trying to escape and then they're all get going blind and they're all facing the slugs. Death slugs. <laughs> the death slugs mm-hmm. from above. I got bad news. Everybody's going blind. But worse news, there are death slugs. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and mm-hmm. at that point, Murtry is just as weak as any of the other characters in the situation. You know, Holden's the 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 man with the one eyes in the kingdom of the blind or whatever. Uh, so he may be a mustache twirler, but he's not the big evil supervillain mm-hmm. of the story. It's it, it is right. it is the planet. It is the other stuff. And I think that, that weakens the season a little bit for me. The, well, the thing about Bern Gorman is the way he plays it. I think he's a little more wide eyed monster yeah. than the story intends him to be in a way because he has a good argument. Right. And he makes it at moments and it sort of takes you back where you're like or it takes you aback where, where you say, well, wait a second. How, did, how is it that this monster just made a good point? Because. The, the truth is that they shoot down the shuttle, the, that the belters shoot down the shuttle and kill most of his people. And so they get off on the wrong foot, to say the mm-hmm. least. And so he's got an argument, but at the same time, his his tactics are so heavy handed and he seems so kind of wide eyed and murderous. And hisses like a snake. Yeah, that yeah. Makes, it makes <laughs> it makes it hard for you to say. But this man has some reasonable uh, objections, everybody, because <laughs> it's right. It, but it's not just Bern Gorman at fault there, because that otherwise great uh, scene between Bern Gorman and Wes Chatham um, at, at, <sighs> at the table in the bar when uh, they confront each other. It's a great scene. I love watching Wes Chatham do his work. But the script has Amos saying, you know, you enjoyed it when you killed that person. You know, you enjoy it so much. You know, the script is making Murtry the mustache twirler as much as Bern Gorman is. I mean, Amos, uh, there's some good Amos in this season. Yeah, there's yeah. some really good Amos using his mutant powers where he can detect a guy like that from a thousand right. years. Well, I mean, this is the thing. So Amos is a sociopath, but he's a good good sociopath. He's on our side. He's our, our SOB, right? He's our <laughs> our remorseless killer. And he you can knows say it. He's, he's our Wolverine without claws. He, he <laughs> knows that he it lacks a moral compass and is a killing machine. And that's why he looks to his friends to tell right. him what is right and what's wrong. And that's sort of charming about Amos. And in this season, I think one of the really effective things is that he also recognizes his own kind. And there are moments that he's placed on that planet where him being our murderous sociopath is just so great because it's like, oh, you guys think you're bad. We got a guy. <laughs> And he knows who he knows your deal. He knows who you are. And it is, I think, maybe my favorite use of Amos in this entire series, because him being willing to go to the most extreme if he needs to is necessary here at a few points. And he makes those threats. And, you know, he's not kidding. It's not like Captain Kirk or Captain Picard saying, you know, well, if you force me to, I will uh, execute General Order 5 and destroy the planet. It's like that's never going to happen. But Amos is like, 
I'll just kill you. It's like he will. Yeah. And using that that exact same uh, th- that exact same logic is is what Mercury spells out in his post office speech uh, down in the bowels of the of the of the ruins. Uh, and I, you know, I, I, I did not know that somebody could make discussing the notion of starting a post office sound that sinister, um, and at once be an interesting lesson on civics. Uh, but it worked. It worked. And it's it, it, it looking at him and Amos as different sides of a coin. We're just more familiar with the Amos side. Right. Um, is 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 an interesting little little bit of duality that that's uh, that's mixed in there. But here's the thing about Mercury. Uh, his, his full name is Adolphus. Mercury, which is like stacker Pentecost level, uh, ridiculous <laughs> mouthful name. And I love it. I, lo- I, you know, I, I love everything about Gorman's performance. I love everything about how it's written and, you know, calling, uh, you know, uh, calling him in, in not so many words, uh, a mustache ruling villain. Uh, I don't mean that as an insult. I like it. Uh, it's it, to me, this is a good implementation of, you know, that, that guy who you see his villain origin story, as it were, you yep. see what turned him. He's just looking for a reason to be righteously murderous, right? And yeah. like he's given carte blanche by the fact that they shoot the shuttle on the way down. Absolutely. He did not respect the belters going in. He's just got an excuse. Exactly. And that's, I think, some of the most dangerous people are people who are just waiting for a, an excuse to be as bad as they want to be. And that is Murtry. That grin full of blood that Amos gives him at the end of, of the season when he gives him that excuse excuse when 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 uh when Mertry gives Amos that excuse to just wail on him on the Rossi also Mertry since we're talking about Mertry because he he is the villain of the piece to a certain degree um but one of the interesting things about it is of course he doesn't die you want the villain to get their comeuppance at the end and that absolutely doesn't happen he gets caught and sent back to earth for trial basically but that's it well we assume he gets his face bashed in after he's healed up real nice sure but but what is interesting is that amos so not only does amos clash with murtry but he's got his like planet side girlfriend right who's who's the second in command to murtry and they have an understanding as well and they're both security people and they're basically both killers but what ends up happening is she doesn't make it because Amos basically has to choose. And that relationship is responsible for one of my favorite Amos line deliveries in the show, which I will censor, um, which is what we ain't forking no more. (laughs) You know, we, we, we get a little bit more dimensionality to him. All right, let's take a little break from the expanse and tell you about our sponsor this week the incomparable this week is brought to you by masterclass masterclass lets you learn from the best with exclusive access to online classes taught by masters of their craft learn the art of filmmaking from martin scorsese improve your screenwriting skills with aaron sorkin learn the art of storytelling from neil gaiman this is bananas over 60 different instructors, all star instructors across tons of categories. There's literally going to be something for everyone. I enjoyed the how to be an astronaut. I'm probably not going to be an astronaut, unfortunately, unless uh, the expanse happens sooner than we think. But uh, Chris Hadfield, the astronaut, has a whole course about what astronauts go through in their training and uh, what life is like in space. And it was uh, it was really awesome. And I also do have some of the writers queued up. I'm very interested in seeing what Neil Gaiman has to say. 
With over 65 wide-ranging class offerings, there's something for everyone. These are awesome classes. You should really check it out. You can get unlimited access to every masterclass right now. And as a listener of The Incomparable, you'll get 15% off the annual all-access pass. Go to masterclass.com slash incomparable to sign up. That's masterclass.com slash incomparable for 15% off Masterclass. Thank you to Masterclass for supporting The Incomparable. And now, back to The Expanse. Yeah, so I want to talk about Holden and Miller. The real love story of the show. We can use (laughs) this to talk about the technology. Look, I am a sucker for ancient alien technology on a dead planet wakes up and starts killing people. That's my jam. I thought you were going to say fedoras, but okay. I also love space fedoras. They are great. <laughs> Abandoned planet fedoras are even better. Um, and so that part of the plot, like there's that moment where they're on their like dune buggies and they're going over to the, the weird thing and they're like, wake it up and, and, and Holden's like, uh Oh, I just woke up the thing with Miller. Uh, very interesting. It's nice to see Thomas Jane. It's nice to see at the end of this season, the, the like dichotomy between kind of like Miller and the investigator where mm-hmm. there is this clash between sort of like Miller's knowledge and personality being used by this ancient computer program, essentially to figure out what's going on. And the fact that they've simulated Miller well enough that Miller is fighting it. Um, Plus, you know, you get they melt a moon. There's a they change the laws of physics for a while, which causes bad things for the spaceships up above. I really enjoyed all of this. And I think it gave it was nice to see Thomas Jane and Stephen Strait have the chance to replay some of my very favorite interactions in the show between Holden and Miller, even though this isn't quite Miller. Um, and, you know, you end up with a very weird thing at the end where Miller is in like a robot and <laughs> like it, it's right. very it's very exciting and also super weird and i liked it i really i enjoy uh seeing miller again and and i like this whole plot of you know because the investigator doesn't really care about the people around it it wants to find the mystery of who killed its creators back way back when and it's okay with turning on flipping all the switches on of all these machines that are going to kill the humans on the planet and then you know with uh with holden trying to figure out how to stop it like i really enjoyed that part of it that's the that's your deep sci-fi part of this uh storyline but i i really enjoyed it that this was how we got the escalation of tension in the in the season is like it's another old machine turning on and doing something totally wacky that is going to threaten everybody if there's a single element of the season i love the most it was that robot you mentioned which (laughs) i thought of as a junkyard dog but it's a dog made out of a junkyard um, it, it reminded me of the classic Looney Tune short duck amuck. It was just, it, it was realistic enough to feel of a piece with the rest of the show, but it was also, uh, weird and silly in, in some respects, if that makes sense. And I just, I, uh, I, I just loved the visual of it. I loved the role that it had to play. I thought it was great. I love Miller. I love the Miller Holden interactions, um, I like Miller so much more having the series to kind of round out his character and the, the TV show. And he seemed to disintegrate and he seems to be gone. And I hope that's not true, but, um, because I'm really going to miss that. I, they just, 
the way that Holden and Miller, like Holden's kind of begrudging, like, okay, let's, let's get this over with the way that Miller, um, personifies or the, the proto molecule uses Miller to personify a person is just, it's hilarious. I, I just, I love it so much. I, they're so good together. And I'm really sad to see that go. Yeah, same here. Uh, of my uh, co-hosts on A Legitimate Salvage, I think I am the only one who really liked Miller all the way through. Um, I think uh, most of them found him a little fedora-y, I guess. <laughs> but uh, it really was nice feeling like Miller himself was finally back in these last couple of episodes of the season uh, when he when he got to essentially be himself. Yeah, that was a really nice moment um, of like, maybe not, don't think about it too hard, but the idea that Miller is in there and there are moments where he basically is trying to override the the thing that's happening. And uh, it's, it's all good. Also, um, Holden gets to be the solution to a, uh, a mystery because he gets to be the only one who can see. And it turns out that it's his, uh, it's his anti-cancer meds from uh, when he got all irradiated. <laughs> that are allowing him to see when everybody else has caught the blindness plague that is happening simultaneous with the the death slug plague blindness plague death slug tsunami earthquake in the books the death slugs happen outside i believe and 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 i think it's more effective to have them all locked in a uh in a very small space um oh, with yeah. death slugs and blinded uh, but yeah, and there's a tsunami and and the, and the whole thing. This has every disaster movie trope compressed into like three episodes, yeah. all of them. Which is great because that's what exploring some planets would be like. Right? You know, it would be like everything. You know, you get this blip in time when you have a probe that surveyed it, maybe, and then you're there, and it's like, okay, well, hopefully that wasn't just like the one good day that this planet gets every right. thirty seven years. You know. But you never, you don't know. So I, I love it. And The Expanse, which is a show that starts out being about sort of like realistic on like planets and moons and things on our solar system. This is like, what is The Expanse's take on on Star Trek, on an alien planet? And the answer is, oh, it's going to kill you. Like It's, it's awful. <laughs> it's going to kill you real bad. This is the literal planet of the apps. It has an app for every disaster you could imagine. A moon <laughs> melts. That's all I'm saying. They melt a moon. Um, speaking of space, we also have action and with spaceships in space because Alex is flying around the Rosinante and Naomi is up there. Um and and because she can't take the the weight of the gravity of the planet and that leads to as the season goes along um not only some interesting collaborations with the scientists or who are on Murtry's mothership who uh hate Murtry because he's terrible and uh but but the when the um when all the spaceships fusion drives turn off because they pushed a button that turned on a system that changed the laws of physics because the planet got scared or whatever um we end up in this whole other thing where they're trying to work the problem and they're trying to they have to end up uh like extending like a cable building a cable and the rosinante is going to try to pull the belter ship up and then Murtry radios up that he wants them to shoot the rosinante and shoot the other ship and all that and so we get in this season two a, a little bit of high stakes drama 
of a very sci-fi kind with spaceships shooting at each other and trying to tow one another out of uh you know from from burning up in the atmosphere and all that and i gotta say i love that stuff and although there's not a lot of alex in this season and i really enjoy alex as a character um the Alex we get is there's a lot of good Alex stuff in these scenes where yeah. Alex is because Alex is so capable. He's such this because, you know, as in the books, he's a kind of a laid back cowboy type, but um, he is so good at his job and uh, and and a good crewmate. And that comes out in the stuff with Alex and Naomi because they spend most of the season on the ship in that way. They didn't have to go to the the quarry very much which i guess lucky for the actors they spent less time in the quarry um any thoughts about alex and naomi and towing spaceships and things like that it's a noble entry into the space tether genre which i guess is now a thing in space tv shows (laughs) the tether the tether that is going to save everything and where there is a space tether there's always a space jump hurtling through the stars season long you know this is mostly a planet story for sure um there's Ilus, there's earth there's mars uh so but the state the space stuff that we do get um between this and later on i'm sure we'll talk about uh Klaus ashford and his misfortune yep. uh but the uh but the stuff that happens on the rossi and with the uh, i cannot remember how to pronounce the other the the other ship oh the one that sounds like something delicious at tony roma's uh the barba the barba piccola. The, barba, the barba piccola it is really stirring stuff there I, I at no point did i really think that they were going to kill off lucia or drop the barba piccola in the atmosphere i never really felt i, I always felt that they were going to pull it out and win um and i and i think on balance i was okay with that but um it was really well done the whatever physics that were working uh were used to great dramatic effect and uh lucia uh getting knocked off of the ship and uh, having to be rescued by naomi um really really good stuff i come to the expanse for the space stuff and what space stuff i got this season i was really happy with well let's uh let's go back through the ring gates uh to the other storylines that are happening in this season so bobby draper is on mars and as i said earlier this is basically adapting one of the uh the novellas which is, I think it's God, Gods of Risk is the one it is. But the idea here is that back on Mars, Bobby is kind of like fi- trying to figure out who she is and who she's going to be. And of course, she's viewed by people in Mars as being a uh, a traitor to Mars because she worked with Avasarala. But uh, we know that she's honorable and she's a, an honorable Martian and a patriotic Martian. But what she finds also is that things on Mars are not that great. And this is a, uh, you know, an important storyline that I think the the show does a good job of showing us. There is a moment where um, somebody tells Bobby basically like, why would Martians continue to commit to the terraforming effort to spend 100 years, you know, basically terraform Mars where we're not going to even live to see it when the ring gates have opened and there are hundreds, if not more, habitable planets on the other side of the ring gates so it's like an existential crisis for all martians and bobby is kind of down on her luck and what's happening is uh criminals are stripping mars and its navy of weapons 
And she gets put in a position while kind of defending her nephew, where she ends up kind of getting roped in to this group of people who are criminals who are doing all of this. And uh, so she takes a little bit of a journey where she she kind of gets forced into something and she does some things that are heroic. And then she does some things that are, you know, that that are uh, morally questionable. And then she reveals herself to be. Uh, heroic again, as we know her. Um, early on, she has that reception for Avasarala where she feels like super offended and um, out of place because it's just sort of rubbing in the fact that she's not, it's the things that she gets criticized by. You know, I, I don't like the fact that Bobby is off on her own storyline this whole season as opposed to interacting with our other characters, but I do think that her storyline's really great and that she got to own it. And that part of that—that's what I liked about it—is that she gets a lot of screen time this season, even though it's just her. And um, you know, I like her having that story arc of basically trying trying to come to grips with who she is and what decisions she's going to make um, morally. I do like it because of that, um, because you know we're we're getting this kind of like you know the MCRN's Veterans Affairs uh, doesn't know their their butt from their head, yeah, and you know they don't know what to do with all these people, and there's you know with the opening of the Ring Gates, there's almost like a a post Soviet Russia kind of a thing where things are falling off trucks. Yep. And nobody seems to know why or who's really paying for him. But there's a bunch of graft going on. Um, I the the introduction of Bobby Draper gave a whole nother life to the show, to the story. And I like the more Bobby Draper I can get. I actually kind of liked her um, being on her own and, and having her own anchor narrative yeah. that that she didn't need the rest of the primary cast for. Um, and. I, I liked that she got a supporting cast of her own and we got more insight into her life and her background. I adore Bobby. Any, any, give me, give me Bobby. I want the, I want the Bobby and um, Eva Sarala show where uh-huh. they just kind of pal around together. And that's, that's, that's what we get because I love them both so much. I love how they interact with one another. Former um, cop, not a cop. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I just uh, give me all the Bobby all the time. Please. I agree. Uh, I think even though her storyline was really severed from the rest of the season, I thought that as actors go and as characters go, Bobby Draper and Frankie Adams are just really, really well served this season. She has such an arc because you're taking away as they've done before on this show you know you take the take away the most important thing for her which is her uh, her um membership in the Martian Marines you know her duty to Mars but this time they explore it even more deeply they give her family members and lovers to play off of and have yeah. tension with and all of that it is such a well-rounded story arc for her in she, this season like she gets a mini heist movie yeah. in her in her story thread uh, uh, yeah a heist that goes bad and then she like saves saves the people she can there's there's multiple heists right because there's the heist where she almost suffocates there's a heist where they get basically double crossed and she saves the saves the people she can um her group is like she she's forced to work with them um and she hates their guts and yet at the end she's honorable and they kind of like appreciate her which i know is it's kind of all out of the trope playbook but i kind of love it like i me too me too and she <laughs> the the thing that really grabbed me was how once she'd gotten into the heist gang for a bit and she started enjoying having money yeah 
and something to do and some a mm-hmm. group and a team to be a part of and like because we know Bobby right like she's she's fun she has a meaning to what she's doing again yeah you mentioned Bobby's uh sex life and I just wanted to mention this because I loved those scenes with the guy that she sleeps with because Bobby is a lot right like she's tall and strong and a soldier and wears combat armor and she's a lot and those scenes are amazing because it's really like she's like yeah i'm a lot can you handle me <laughs> and the i guy, just i i and the cackled, guy's like I cackled uh, when I? he said i feel when he said when he said i feel kind of used and she just dead she says don't worry yeah, you, you kinda, are don't worry you are oh, and i just i did that I love was, it. Oh, it was so good i love it because that i mean because because it's Bobby Draper. I mean, because what what would bother me is if we get to this point and suddenly it's like, oh no, no. In this context, Bobby is going to be softer and yeah. more demure, and the and the guy is going to be more manly. And it's like, I'm enough man to, for you, baby, and all that. It's like, no, no. And that's what's great about it. It's like, no, you realize this is Bobby Draper, right? Like, forget it, dude. <laughs> And, it, and that's what they do. It's great. I love it because uh, I love Frankie Adams. I love her performance here. I love the character, and she's so amazing that this is exactly what I wanted to see in terms of that kind of relationship. Where she's like, "Yep, yep." There's this one point where she just she just had a demeanor to her where it, where it it spoke without the dialogue, as if to say. This isn't where my feelings go. So <laughs> we're still good, yeah. right? Because we had a this there was a deal here. I got all the upper hand here, you know. And it's like, yeah, uh-huh, I know, I know. And and it's I don't know. It's 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 funny because I think you could criticize this season for leaving Bobby off on an island on her own, but I would definitely make the counter argument, which is all your characters are over here doing a plot, and then one character is holding down this whole other part of the plot. And so we get the whole Bobby show and I love it. Like, I'm happy to have Bobby. I love her interacting with other characters, but I'm also kind of loving the adventures of Bobby Draper, Space Marine down on her luck. It's it's pretty yeah. great. Well, and, and without it, we have like, what are the choices? Either we get Bobby on Illus somehow or she's entirely left out of the season, neither of which are acceptable alternatives to me. Um, so I was glad to have I was glad to have this. And it was nice to see her outside of where she is comfortable, you know, and totally having her down on her luck. And I think it also will provide support for the things, no spoilers, but things that come later, like more understanding as to why she makes the decision she does. They've chosen to use her to lay some groundwork for future plot developments, yeah. which I think is yep. is a great mm-hmm. use of her and Avasarala, because obviously the main po- points are happening in Illis, but you know, clearly the series is going to turn back to what the political ramifications are back home. And so so that's part of this. And also Bobby, you know, like I loved those scenes with Bobby where she's trapped at the UN and she doesn't like know what she's going to do in terms of Mars versus Earth. And, and she's so impressive when she's in her armor, when she's an incredibly competent officer, but she gets really really interesting when you know how competent and impressive she is and now she's she's wrong-footed and she has to like figure out how to navigate it that's to me that's the most it's not the bobby i love the most because the bobby i love the most is she's in armor and she's killing people but but i i I really enjoy 
when she's an impressive person who can't be impressive right now and has to figure it out. That's really interesting. And that's what we get this season. Also, somebody who is more loyal to Mars than Mars is loyal to her. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, the the veteran angle really is kind of impressive. As Moises said, the the veterans affairs people being really bad at their jobs and uh, she's not really taken care of and they don't give her really any good jobs. And she's a hero and she loves Mars and the Martians kind of think she's a traitor kind of and they don't really take good care of her and it's so tragic right because she didn't betray them and she's got their best interests at heart and they you know it, it reminded me of a Vietnam veteran homecoming story kind of thing where it's like you get home and you've you've done terrible things and risked yourself for your nation and they don't want you when you get home and that's what happens to bobby at the beginning of this season yeah and on top of that it's not just that it's personal you know that that they've abandoned her uh but uh martian society more broadly speaking has abandoned the the sort of the driving the the driving sort of political or cultural stuff that she was behind the whole military complex has basically lost all of its yeah. thrust well, the, here the dynamic for everybody for 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 members of the OPA for mm-hmm. uh for the MCRN for other Martians for um for for uh earth people all of them it it, it is a completely different paradigm now and yeah. what we got during this season which was layered in with all the just you know telling the story and doing the plot and everything was watching those stratifications, some of them crumble, some of them completely disintegrate, and and look at how the soil is shifting yeah. with all of this stuff. We were promised a blood-soaked gold rush at the end of season three, mm-hmm. and we don't quite have that yet except on Eyeless itself, but we see it coming. Well, the power vacuum is the key here, right? Like, this is the... the, And I know what's to come because I've read the books, but I think you can see it in this season regardless, which is, it's the calm before the storm. Yes, the gold rush is happening, but it's also like Mars doesn't really know what it's doing. There's a power vacuum happening there where it's like the military is in kind of... Uh, in free fall and that like they're smuggling weapons out into the belt. The belt is confused about what it's doing now because they've got that station in the ring. And then we, and we're going to get to that, that part where they've like the OPA is, is, uh, has a bunch of different factions and some of them want to be part of like polite society and others don't. And how, how does that work? And then earth is its own mess where there's a real question about the, what they want to do. And Avasaral is in the, the election campaign and they're all, you know, so it, it is very much like the old way is over. We don't know what's going to happen next, but everything is kind of in this moment of, of quiet, before everything's gonna kind of fall apart, I think is the a, a very reasonable read of 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 what's happening back in the solar system as we uh, as we watch season four. Let's talk about Earth. Let's go to Earth. Avasarola is uh, she's got to run, fight an election. She's uh, just as foul mouthed and angry when she's campaigning. Just what I want to talk about, Jason: an election on Earth. <laughs> Uh, it, it and it goes kind of back and forth, and she ultimately loses the election, which is interesting. But it goes back and forth. She makes some hard decisions. They uh, there's uh, she she authorizes a, some military 
uh, things that don't go well and reflect badly. Um, you know, we don't spend as much time with her as maybe we have in some previous seasons, but it, it, one of the things that they've done that is not always right with the books is use her to kind of take us back to earth and look at what the bigger political picture is. And, uh, and, and we get a lot of that this season, I think. It's the decline, like the decline of Avrasarala is what we don't realize. Well, I mean, you know, we aren't given or meant to realize that's what we're easing into at the beginning of the season. And, and the way that they pace that decline in, in her power, in her influence, in her ability to do things the way that she's always done them. I found really well handled and it, it didn't wear out its welcome. I didn't get tired of it. I never found myself going, Oh God, ever Sorella again. Um, maybe it was just because there was another new delightful way that she could curse yeah, that I would, could be. that I would be shown. These are the parts that I didn't love this season is, um, not necessarily like the political machinations, but really her relationship with her husband. Uh-huh. One yeah. of the things that I have so loved about them is how supportive he has always been of her. He knows who she is. He knows what she's like. And he always is supportive of her. And they really eroded that this season. And I didn't yeah. like it. I did not like it at all. I didn't feel like it was true to the way that they've set things up before you know, previously. Mm-hmm. And again, with the lens of knowing what's coming, I think that they're doing a disservice to their relationship. Um, and I think I can see why they're doing it, but I do, I don't like it at all. I it did not work for me in any way, shape or form. I completely agree. Like that's the, the, the like broader narrative stuff that they did with her was totally fine. But that element, it just, it felt like, okay, and now it is taking this turn because plot. Yeah. And I hate yep. that. It yep. drives me absolutely crazy. I think me three. I, I think it takes the character down a bit. Uh, it takes Afro Sorella's character down a bit that I didn't think it needed to go that far. Yeah. I don't know what's coming. So, um, so you know, I, I, I guess I'll be surprised. But it felt like the story was taking Christian down a peg more than needed than it needed to. Um, I think that the recasting of Arjun kind of worked for what the story was demanding of the character. I don't think Brian George could have pulled off what the season was asking of the character, but I wish that it hadn't gone there, really. You know, I don't like having a character that I like laid low, and it's not fun, but... I thought it was interesting that she's not a politician. She's a tactician. She's the person you want in the job because she's good at it, but she's not the person you want in the job, if that makes any sense. Are you saying her likability is not high enough to make her electable? She's there because she's competent, (laughs) not because she won an election, right? She wasn't. She ended up in charge of the U.N., because the corrupt guy, jerks, because, because Aaron yeah. Wright was there, and then he got ejected because he was a corrupt jerk, and then she's in charge. But she's not; she it's not the part of the job she's good at, and she's not good at connecting with people. She's good at at doing the job, and I think that that I think that's very perceptive of the show, because that happens all the time, where it's like you're good, you're good enough to do the job, but people won't ever elect you to do the job 
which is just a it's a contradiction. People get selected to do things because of factors that are not necessarily the factors that make you good at the job. And so I liked the fact that after she navigates all of these super important things, in the end, a member of her staff essentially quits to run against her, who is, you know, I, I, I will I will say Nancy Gao um, was kind of a cardboard villain, right? Like the show, yeah. I feel like the show just portrays her as being like, who does she think mm-hmm. she is? Uh, she She's a, you know, question everything that Avasarala does and I'm going to run on that. I'm going to run on being, you know, innuendo about like, oh, well, she I would have done it better and all of that. Uh, I, I didn't like that aspect of it, but I did like the aspect of like Avasarala is bad at this. Like she is the person who will keep Earth safe, but she won't be allowed to because she's bad at like people. She's bad at campaigning. She's great at the job. Yeah. 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 And, I, and I like that aspect of it, yeah. that, that she's she, we've seen her be so good. She's never incompetent. That's what's most important right. to me. And she's bad at this. And as a viewer, you're like, no, 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 you no, seriously, voters of the future in this TV show, you want her in charge. <laughs> and the voters are like, no, well, we, I don't know. Maybe we don't want her in charge. They're like, no, 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 <laughs> you don't. No. So although it was frustrating and, and I get like the, the, that her husband is, you know, doing that thing of like, you've, you've changed kind of thing. It was, it, that was a little overdramatic, but like, yeah. I like Avasarala being challenged here because she's so great that I think that laying her low a little bit and 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 having her fail at stuff makes her a more full-fledged character and it does feel like also in the story arc part of this we are in a dip here where for Bobby and Avasarala at least after the highs of previous seasons they're kind of on some hard times here and and i i appreciate that maybe it's because i know that the plot continues and that there there are new challenges that for them to rise to but here it's like yeah they're kind of being laid low and it sucks but it's also you know i also kind of like it because i don't want them to be perfect and paragons I, I i appreciate seeing their their failures and their flaws too i totally i agree with all of that like on the political front the just the piece that really bugged me was the dynamic with her husband yeah. just yeah. um but yeah i i thought it was really good to see to see her weaknesses i mean we know her weaknesses right we we've watched this foul-mouthed person (laughs) do a lot of things that a lot of people couldn't do she's always doing what she thinks is necessary she she's you know and and, but we get to see her achilles heel which is basically she's pretty unlikable and she doesn't even care that she's unlikable you know and so (laughs) it's it's um I thought that worked really, really, really well. And I'm glad that they did that. I just wish that they hadn't pulled that support. Yeah. yeah. I agree about the husband. Like, like the, I think the, I get what they're going for, which is I did too. he's her Jiminy Cricket. He's like, you're going too far here. You're pushing it too far. Don't forget who you are. Don't lose yourself. And the problem with it is like, yeah, I, I hear that, but I feel like what the story you're really telling me is she's a bad politician. And yet his criticism of her would be more in line with if she was a good politician. And and so it feels more like they just want to put extra personal pressure on her life. And and, and when it gets to the point where he's like, I can't even be here anymore in that last episode, he's like, oh, you've changed all all this stuff. It's like, 
Uh, has, has she really? She, yeah. That was a bit of a bit of a leap. Yeah. I'm not yeah, sure yeah, I yeah, bought yeah. it. And they did recast, which is also yeah, and, a little and, weird. And I, I I had myself going, is he a Cylon? Wait, wrong show. <laughs> you know, my my thing my thing was I, 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 very much eye to eye with with Aline on on the 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 dynamic. It just rang completely false. The uh, the thing I disagree with you a little bit about Jason uh, is Nancy Gao, where. Does she feel cardboard? Does she feel like she's uh, manufactured from an opposition candidate factory? Sure. <laughs> okay. Did I recently moderate a debate with candidates, some of whom really, really, really vividly reminded me of Nancy Gout, not because of gender or race, but just because of delivery and position and their personality was effectual, was effectively opposition. <laughs> like that, that is the personality that they had was opposition so and ambition me, because I'm not was their personality. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's it, for, for me, it, it, it was, it was vividly real <laughs> as, uh, as, as somebody uh, standing for election uh, because the, those, those people are out there and sure. um, sometimes they do get elected and suddenly they have a whole basket of kittens to deal with that they were not expecting. I guess this is what they what were going for but i kind of would have rather seen nancy Gao have a little bit more behind her other than like i would rather be in power than you being her platform i would rather have it have been like a legitimate feeling that avasarala's way wasn't right but that's not how she's portrayed so yeah i mean i don't want to run down this fictional character but but you're right it happens a lot where it's sort of like hey i somebody has to step up as the opposition and if it's me and i win i'm in charge so that's what she does and and i just i kind of wish she had a little more i i wanted the i wanted the show to interrogate avasarala a little bit more in terms of like what she, her decision making but nancy gao seems more like an opportunist to me than than somebody who's actually going to interrogate who avasarala is i i look forward to what she now has to deal with going into season five i will say no more about what i am pretty <laughs> sure is going to happen in season books, five aren't we're, gonna, you? we're gonna save we're gonna save chip from uh, the spoilers of what's gonna happen next we gotta talk about the belt this last last stop is belt loda ashford and drummer um and can i just say oh, I, I god I, I love these two i watched the season and i thought they're not gonna get david strathairn back again are they and it's like oh man they did and he's in this mm-hmm. whole season they're not gonna get him back again unfortunately because <laughs> oh yeah boss man you right about he, that man. he gets spaced at the end of this season but what a season we get more with him and drummer and the internal politics we only get a little glimpse of fred johnson which kind of bummed me out but we do get a little glimpse of him um but the idea of uh, this part of the show, I love this. Is what I love about the show is like it really is so ambitious in trying to portray so many aspects of of like human society. And this is all about what happens when you go from being the rebels to being authority. And the answer is some people rush in to be authority, and then another group says you sold out. We're we're still the rebels, and that's what. Ashford and Drummer have to deal with where they've got Marco Inaros of the OPA and he's running around doing plotting and catching asteroids and things like that and stealing weapons and all of these other things that are going on. And Ashford and Drummer are trying to be like uh, respectable belters. And I like those characters. I like to see them in this belter culture. Um, and I think it's a really interesting portrayal. I was thinking a lot about the Palestinians and how there was so much, uh, there was so much, um, friction between the different aspects of the Palestinian groups where they're like, you sold out, <laughs> like you, you say you're a government now and we're not. And, and you can see it in other examples of, 
of people who have this sort of status change and they're like, oh, now is our time to step into this society. And some group does it. And the other group is like, no, 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 you're being used by that society. Don't do that. Mm -hmm. And I got a lot of that richness out of this season of The Expanse with the Mm -hmm. Belters. It was really good. I like how it's not a binary analog either. It's not, oh, so they're basically this in, you know, in the classic mold of old Star Trek alien races who are clearly supposed to be race X or political group Y, that kind of it's thing. It's more broadly like this stuff happens over and over again where yeah. some group is like your chance to walk into the mainstream and some of them walk in and the others are like, no, don't walk in. And then there's another clash that happens some of the it's some of those questions that we get you know a little bit of an indication of the mandalorian of what the new republic had to contend with of having been rebels and now being in charge after right. not so not the so events clear not so Jedi. easy it's not like everybody in the belt is like yay now we're legitimate and we're gonna run this station and we're gonna be in the belt and plus let's not forget i talked about mars's existential question in the back of this is also the Belters existential question, which is for sure. Who are we? Like we have a, a group of Belters who are who have abandoned the low gravity environments of the belt to land on this planet to get a home there. And it's like, who are we? Are we people in other star systems? Are we workers in the outer solar system? Um, and that's part of the mix, too. It's not just who are we politically, but it's like, who are we as as a people? And Mars is grappling with it. The belt is, too. They embody that conflict so clearly. Really it's do. so ironic that Drummer, who is the most powerful woman in the belt, practically, because she's running Medina Station, is also the one who's the least happy about that. <laughs> Because she doesn't want the belt to become just like Mars and Earth. She, she's reverse Nancy Gao. She's like, I don't want this job. I don't want this job. I don't want my people to become this. Yeah. We, we, we are belters. We float. We are, uh, we, we, we are long and lean and we live out in the rocks. We are trying to, the, the, the colonists who go down to Eilis, they're trying to be somebody who are not. They're not being proud belters to a certain extent. But there's, and, there's the, the flip side of that is the risk of like, but if all civilization ends up being on these rocks all over the galaxy, are we just the, like, the porters in deep space mm-hmm, who carry mm-hmm, stuff from place yeah. to place? Is that... It, can we do we have power and a voice then or are we going back to being the voiceless uh, people who are just ferrying your shuttles from point A to point B? And and correct me if I'm wrong, like in, in the canon of the story, like the Belters have been Belters for multiple generations and generations. Yeah, they've right? lived off yeah. of gravity wells for yeah. uh, many generations. And, and that's why they're culturally so different. Well, they're, what they're having to do is face is face something that it's it's like they they it's it's something they don't have a word for basically of we have options what are options other than rebelling and pushing back against right. the people that that have their boot heel permanently affixed to our throats right what if we had to choose right. who we want to be and we might be able to get it as opposed mm-hmm. to what up till now all we've been able to do is resist uh, and again, there are lots of historical parallels, and that's the beauty of science fiction and the beauty of this series is sort of like not – it's not one, but it is this question that happens in societies sometimes, which yeah. is like, well, who are you now? Like the the, the world has changed, and and you think you're one people, but a lot of different people have different ideas about what it means to be a belter after the ring gates open, and including – 
uh, drummer. It's well, it circles back to our inciting incident of the season is these belters heading toward New Terra Illus, whatever we're calling it this five minutes of the show. Yeah. Uh, they the the reason that the blockade is instituted because the powers that be the two different versions of powers that be go, whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, this changes everything, <laughs> makes life better for everybody, but that's a bit too much better for you, please. Uh, right. Calm down. Know your place. And and that this is not just didactically one thing, but so multifaceted that we get an element of it in the vote as to whether to let Marco and Aros live or die. And we see that split between Ashford and Drummer. Uh, it's just so beautifully done. Yeah. I mean, I feel like uh, Drummer is like fighting almost to, to prevent the belt from being gentrified out of existence or something. Um, and and she she is holding that position because she feels like it. she needs to for the belt to survive. But she questions what kind of survival it is. Um, I it's, I think it's really interesting what's happened to Ashford between the last season and this season. It's like a, a switch has flipped and he's become a different kind of realist. Um, and watching watching them bounce off of each other um, ha, is, is a lot of fun. I also love that one little scene uh, when Fred Johnson comes on to Medina Station and he walks into the room and... Uh, Ashford greets him and then steps cleanly out of the way so Drummer can deck him. Mm. The, those OPA tensions, um, <laughs> I guess that they're going to become much more important in the near future. So, the, yeah, I mean, the big the big thing that we find that is the you don't need to the books to to see this is Marco Inaros, who is introduced this season, who is Naomi's former lover. And he is the father of her child. And he has Philip, their child, who is with that with him. Who he spent 16 years radicalizing. Yeah. And and Marco, all the other big kind of leaders of factions of the OPA are ready to go legit and make money and be in part of civilized, you know, civilization. And Marco Inaros is not like he is not. It's the um, I'm going to bring yet another parallel historical parallel in here. It's like the parts of the IRA that say we're going to sign these accords and we're going to normalize relations in Northern Ireland. And then there's the people who are like, well, we're going to go form the real IRA and we're going to keep yeah. detonating bombs because we we're, don't. We're going to we're going to keep living in the edges of chaos that we can wedge in alongside right. you guys doing that. You guys do whatever you're going to do, we're, you know, or you can do what we actually said. Also, to you know, somebody like Marco Inaros um, very clearly has grander designs where he's he's feeling like because, I mean, again, he is capturing asteroids and he's he's had spaceships and other stuff that he's he's thrown at, at at the earth like he has bigger ideas of like bringing the war to the inners where everybody else is like dude cool it we're okay with the inners now he is not okay with the inners he thinks that it's time to escalate not to stand down and that's interesting and very clearly the last episode makes it very clear that he is going to be a force to be dealt with and it's not you know casting spoilers they did announce that marco and philip are serious regulars next year so like 
you can figure it out that it's going to be a big deal. You know, and what he does at the end of the season, well, he's already done it. It's already it's already, you know, he's skipping rocks across the galaxy uh, and and it's it's in motion. And it's a matter of we have an idea of at least some uh, version of what the plan is with those. Those are weapons of mass destruction trained on the inner solar system, basically. And he's decided that that's what he's going to do is he's going to start a war in the solar system. So forget about the uh, the settling of all uh, of all grievances. And now we can just explore the rest of the galaxy peacefully as humans. That is not his plan. That's not happening if he has anything to say about it. Another bit from from the the OPA thread of the story uh, maybe one of my favorite visuals in the whole season is Ashford flying backward in zero G to gunning it. Um, when he boards Marco's ship, I was like, I don't know that David Strathairn that I ever expected <laughs> to see a David Strathairn gunning down bad guys in space, um, like hero shot. I didn't know that I needed that in my life, but I did need that in my life. Yeah. This show is again, every time he was on screen, I thought, this silly little sci-fi space show here has this really great, like legitimately great actor in it. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, it's so weird. Mm-hmm. It's great. And he's great. And I will miss him since they spaced him. <laughs> but uh, just uh, I love it. It's amazing. I can imagine that casting meeting where they're like, OK, David, so here's the thing. You're going to you're going to do uh, two runs of production in Toronto. Uh, we're going to put a giant latex application on your neck and face. Can I do a weird accent? And they're like, oh boy, can you? <laughs> David, 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 I've got great oh, news because here's yes. the thing. Yes, David, you will do a weird accent. And he loves it. That's actually one of the things I love about watching David Strathairn in The Expanse is he is relishing his ridiculous <laughs> belter accent. It's amazing. I love it. I love it. And his sea shanties. Let's not forget the sea shanties. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it, I mean, like when you have that offered to you and you're David Strathairn, and most of what you it's get yes. are, oh, hey, so you're you're the Oscar winning guy. Uh, tell you what, we've got we've got a judge for you to play. He's got five lines or we've got an attorney for you to play. Or nope. here's a senator. How about a space pirate who's sort of reformed? Like, OK, I'll do that. I'll do it. So um, I don't know what and he's got. Gi- he's got a giant latex application. Even better. Before we go, I I, uh, I want to wrap up. But like, again, what will happen in season five? People who've read the books probably have a pretty good understanding of it. But like expectations going forward after having this season drop on Amazon. Um, Chip, we're going to start with you because you haven't read the books. How are you feeling about uh, what is to come with The Expanse with season five Nick, or later this year, I, I would imagine later toward the end of 2020? Oh, I've got this vague feeling that it's going to be a bad day for at least some people on planet Earth in the very near future. I, I just don't know. Just just a just a hint. We'll see. I mean, that's Marco Inaros would like it to be a very bad day for the inner solar system. That much is, is certain. Right. Uh, and uh, whether the message that Ashford uh, recorded ever goes anywhere, who knows? Right. Um, I think the big thing that I'll be curious about is um, so. Holden is our uh, long-suffering paladin who's got to save everybody. Um, you know, he's he at at his worst, he can be like uh, Toby Maguire, Peter Parker, um, just sort of hang dog. I've got to save everybody. I've got to put one foot in front of the other. But he's had the benefit of having Miller in his head, and that appears to be off the table now. So I'll be really interested in season five to see. Who is Holden when he's 
got all this history behind him, but he's not special. He's not got Miller talking to him anymore. That'll be something that I'll be curious about because it's sort of been a great man narrative. And now where will they go with this when his gimmick is gone? Aline, uh, thoughts going into season five? You know, I'm trying to think of what I would think is going to happen if I didn't have an idea. If you were dumb like me. And I don't know. But what I do know is that this if things pan out as they have in terms of pacing and correspondence with the books, my favorite book is the fifth book. And so <laughs> I... No pressure. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So I want the season right this second, and I also never want it because... <laughs> bad things, bad yeah, things are coming. There are character moments I'm hoping will happen, but I don't know if they will. So um, I'm really looking forward to the next season. I'm excited for it and also not. Mm. Um, so we'll All right. See. Excitement, we'll trepidation. <laughs> yeah. Moises? What we get right there at the end of season four, when he lets go his asteroid sized stones, he's skipping across the lake that is the Sol system. Um, uh, Marco Inaros, that is. Uh, it is. It is like we paused the YouTube video just as somebody dropped the triggering domino in one of those giant warehouse size domino effect videos. And not to sound like a sociopathic entropist, uh, but I cannot wait to see this tinderbox blow um, <laughs> because that this whole season, it, it has been building up the tinderbox and making it as unboring as humanly possible. That's what I think the big victory of this season is, is setting things up for everything to 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 go uh, goofy, crazy balls uh, in season five. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, the nitpicks and issues and concerns and grievances aside. Um, you know, I, I like that. The, the other thing that I had in my notes that I'd be remiss if I didn't mention is, uh, I think it is great that the Canadian dialectic style, uh, has such a prominence in the future. Um, and, uh, and I think that, uh, that the, the expanse is holding up the standard of, um, of Canadian science fiction, uh, production quite well. Uh, and uh, and I look forward to hearing even more distinctly Canadian accents in space. A lot of Canadians out there. I join in the enthusiasm for it, along with a little of Aline's trepidation. Uh, again, without spoiling what actually happens in the book Nemesis Games, I will say that one of the structural things that's challenging about Nemesis Games is that the crew of the Rosinante kind of each has their own plot line. And I'm not sure where they all are like kind of going off and having their own little kind of adventures that are happening simultaneously. And I'm not sure that works as a TV show. So I'm intrigued to see how they maybe rejigger the plot to keep the characters either together or in smaller groups or crossing over one another as the season goes along. Because unlike with a book where you can have everybody together at the beginning and the end and off on their own adventures in the middle, like that book... A TV show, I feel like, really does need to hold its characters a little bit closer to itself and like let you see them interacting with one another. So I'm a little skeptical of that. I feel like, you know, what they've shown is that these second drafts where they make some revisions to the books in order to make them better as television, have they've succeeded with that up to now. So I'm optimistic about it. But I feel like it's a great story, but I'm not sure as written it works as a TV show. So, yeah, I feel like The Magicians has pulled off a version of that. Um, not not quite for the entire length of a season, 
but I, I feel like I feel like the magicians is a good case of of scattering your central pivot characters uh, to the winds. The book is really almost like everybody goes off on their own and is all by themselves. And I feel all like right, everybody, it's the side quest. I feel book. like bye. But you know, a lot of that can be handled with pacing of like, well, this per- this character's gone, but really only for like one or two episodes, and then the- and and we see what they're doing while they're gone, and then they come back. But like. I don't think you can just like scatter everyone out and then bring them back together and have it make sense on TV. So I'm curious about that, but it's a great story. I hope that they uh, lean into it because there's a lot of interesting, memorable stuff in that book. Yeah. And uh, if we're lucky, we'll get to see Peaches again. Gosh, wouldn't that be nice? It would be nice. She's seen briefly in season four and it's like, hey, everybody remember Peaches? Yeah, remember remember Peaches? Here's a quick space-time call. Yeah. She gets one space-time one space call a month. Call. Just to keep her on the line until next season, maybe. I, I don't, because I honestly don't know if they're going to... That's the great thing, Chip. The great thing about having not read the books is you have no idea what's going to come. I've read the books and I have no idea how they're going to adapt it, so they may throw yeah. all sorts of things out. I, none of us really know what they're going to do. It's part of the fun. The only way I feel like I can spoil myself is is paying the kind of attention that I do to the interviews and and statements and things they put out about who they have signed as a recurring. Yeah, th- those, I mean, are, the, some, those some are the giveaways. People, <laughs> yeah, but but the the thing they said in an interview, and again, this doesn't spoil anything other than the fact that unlike some writers' rooms, they do apparently have a plan for the entire arc of what the book covers uh, of what the book series covers. That's good. They've said we have a plan for this. We have thought about this. We're good. Yeah. Don't worry. Yeah, because there's other plot twists that happen down the road, and they they have definitely said that they have a, they have an idea, even though they haven't said what it was. So, yeah. All right. Well, this has been a, a great pleasure, as all of these sort of uh, late 2019 TV series episodes have been. We got a lot of really great TV in late 2019, and we're still like clearing out the uh, the decks, clearing out the stack of all of these things. And the Expanse was a a great one. I really enjoyed being able to watch it at my own pace. Um, I watched it in less than 10 weeks, but I also didn't watch it in two days. So, you know, somewhere in between. And uh, I would like to thank my guests for being here. Aline Sims, thank you so much for being here. Thanks. I always love talking The Expanse. Moises Chuyan, thank you. Oh, yeah, boss man. Make sure they never looking at you like they measuring your office for drapes. <laughs> and Chip Sutterth. Thank you for being here. And thank you for podcasting on A Legitimate Salvage, where you are going through every episode of the show one by one and people uh you got a great panel over there and people should check it out absolutely uh thanks to my partners in crime over there katie burt jen burt and warren vry yeah excellent people should check it out if you love the expanse and you're not listening to a legitimate salvage you know what are you doing you can you can do a rewatch and rewatch and listen along with the they started back with episode one of season one and have pushed forward so you've got uh, you got to rewatch ready to go while you're waiting for season five. So check a legitimate salvage out at the incomparable. And I have been your host, Jason Snell. It's been a, a fun ride next week. Episode 500. Until then, goodbye. 